Welcome to the You Collective Pathmakers podcast. Today, we're really excited to have Emily Worth. Emily, welcome to You Collective. Thanks for having me. So let's start with uh, what you do. Let's get right in. Tell us about what you do now, and then we can talk about your journey. I am a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois. Um, my specific area of focus right now is women's and reproductive rights. How did you get into this area? I went to law school knowing that I wanted to work on social justice issues and civil rights issues. And so the first job that I had immediately out of law school, I was working a lot on housing discrimination, discrimination on the basis of race, gender, family status in housing. Um, from there, I started to work on women's rights in employment and education as well. Uh, and that's how I um, eventually came to my current position, uh, where I do a mixture of reproductive rights work and then uh, women's rights in education, employment, housing, etc. And for audience that may or may not know about ACLU, can you just give us a quick description of what the organization's mandate is? Absolutely. So uh, the ACLU is a nationwide organization. We have a national organization and then we have affiliates in all 50 states. And our job really is to uh, protect and defend people's constitutional and civil rights um, that they have here in the United States. And as a as attorney at ACLU and given your work focus, what does your day-to-day look like? Who do you work with? and so forth. Uh, at the ACLU, we try to have an integrated advocacy strategy. So we have lawyers, um, but we also have people who are specialists in communications and in policy work and in public education. And so sometimes what we're doing is uh, filing a lawsuit to defend somebody's constitutional rights or civil rights. But other times what we're doing is trying to change the law and make it better and make it stronger so that people have more rights um, to protect themselves against discrimination um, and other incursions. And through your work to date, what what have been some of the biggest lessons, uh, if you could reflect here with our audience? Absolutely. I think that the, the biggest lesson I've learned through law school and then Um, beyond into my career is that there's really no one right way to be a public interest lawyer. Uh, Law school (laughs) can be the kind of place where people will tell you, you know, you have to do it a certain way. You have to join a certain club or take a certain class or um, try to get a certain job after you graduate. And what I've learned is if you know what your passions are and you go after them, there really isn't a right or wrong way to get to the point that you're looking to end up. As long as you can demonstrate why you chose the path that you chose, uh, the opportunities will be there for you. So let's talk about that more. Uh, You went to University of Chicago, and then you went to Harvard Law School. And then after Harvard Law School, you did a few other things, uh, including working at the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law and, and, and so forth. How did you get into those opportunities or how did each of those opportunities drive your interests? Sure. So 
when you want to do uh, public interest law, particularly in the nonprofit sector, right out of law school, unfortunately, there are not a lot of opportunities. Uh, main of the, one of the main ways that you can get into that field is by seeking a fellowship through a couple of different funding organizations that essentially will fund uh, new lawyers to go work at uh, public interest organizations um, doing uh, new projects or um, contributing to the work of these organizations, uh, something that the organization itself maybe could not fund, but with the help of these outside funding organizations, it's able to bring on these new lawyers. And so I was lucky enough to get uh, a fellowship through an organization, uh, <coughs> excuse me, called the Skadden Foundation. Um, and so they gave me funding to um, spend two years working at the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, doing housing discrimination work. Um, and then from there, I got a second fellowship opportunity at an organization called the National Women's Law Center, um, which is where I uh, really started to focus in on, on women's rights advocacy. Okay. Um, before we talk about women's rights, um, let's talk about the, the earlier work that you have done around housing discrimination. Mm-hmm. How has that uh, topic evolved or work evolved, uh, presumably given um, the proliferation of data, right? If you look at the New York Times and others, they allow the journalists start using a lot more data to portray um, the phenomena in uh, different cities. Um, do, do you use a lot of, did you use a lot of data in that work or do people in, in looking at housing discrimination use a lot of data or uh, the challenge uh, in addressing that topic lies somewhere else? Actually, data is a very important part of the work that um, that a lot of folks on doing housing discrimination advocacy um, do. And it's interesting because a lot of us who are lawyers maybe aren't the best at math. <laughs> um, you know, we're adequate, but um, certainly not, not super skilled at math. But a big part of... Sh- Um, If you bring a lawsuit and you claim that something is discriminatory, uh, one of the things you may need to show is that it's having a disproportionate impact on a particular population. And that means basically marshalling your statistics to show that one group is experiencing the harms of a policy disproportionate to, um, you know, their... um, the general population. And so there actually is quite a big role for looking at the data that we have around things like segregation and uh, who lives where and in what communities in order to establish that certain housing policies may have a discriminatory impact that is unlawful. And do you think that cities or organizations are doing a good job today uh, in collecting this data uh, with, with, you know, open data movement or there's a lot more work that can be done to help document uh, more unbiased or more complete sets of data around housing? You know, I'm not really sure I'm enough of an expert to know if what we've got out there already is adequate. Um, I will say that there are a lot of organizations doing really innovative work using that data to mm-hmm. analyze what the problems are. Oftentimes, one of the barriers is that um, cities or other government actors um, don't want to make the changes that even the data says that they might need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's turn to the, your current focus, um, which is around women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and what 
obviously has been talked about um, everywhere, um, and there are a lot of debates. Um, media portray in many different ways. What are some of the biggest takeaways that you have working with women um, who come to ACLU um, or through the cases that you have worked with before? If you can share anything around those. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, women who need reproductive health care. What is it that brings them to the point of of making the decision to need to access reproductive health care? What are the barriers that they are experiencing to that? Um, unfortunately, this is an area where there is a lot of extreme rhetoric uh, that is thrown around. And that rhetoric is really not in any way connected to the actual experiences of, a, of an individual who's perhaps facing an unattended pregnancy or trying to access birth control and what is it that's motivating them and what are the, what are the challenges that they're experiencing? And for the, you know, there, there are lots of, you know, uh, discussions around, um, you know, educating, uh, providing education for girls, um, getting women into, um, you know, technology, math, other programs, and to your point, um, you know, women do come to a point in their lives where they have to make a decision, um, presumably about whether or not they want to be a mother um, and so forth. Are there things that, um, you know, the education system or our society can do more um, other than, you know, individual efforts uh, based on what the individual beliefs are? other than what ACLU around the country um, is doing. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's just a real shame here in, in our country is that we don't have a national policy for paid family leave. And so many people can't even afford to take paid leave when they are um, a new parent, for example, because um because their employer, even if their employer offers leave at all, it's not paid and they can't afford to miss a paycheck. Um, and then to the extent that, that people do have access to paid leave, oftentimes women who use it when they're starting a family are actually then discriminated against because they're seen as less committed to their jobs. Um, so in, in other countries, in some European countries, for example, not only are their policies much more generous than ours, that actually enables people to truly take leave, but they also have incentives for both partners, both parents to take the leave so that it is not a, we don't create a perpetuate, we don't perpetuate an assumption that only women take leave and therefore women who are caregivers are not good employees or not desirable employees. And it is a, it is a unfortunate reality that that is still very much a perception that drives a lot of decision-making in our employment market here in the United States. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I, I read uh, that U.S. is the only developed country that doesn't have um, a national paid leave yeah, uh, it's, policy. It's pretty disheartening, but it's true. Do you think it will ever change? Certainly, there's a lot of work going on. There's a lot of really important um, advocacy happening at the national level to try to get some kind of national law. There's also a lot of really important advocacy happening state by state, so that at least some states will have statewide policies. Um, I, I am hopeful that it's something that we can change, but certainly it's going to require a lot of effort. What do you think women 
ourselves can do more on this topic? I think it's really important that we um, speak up for ourselves, but also speak up for our colleagues. Um, and uh, for example, if you are in a position of planning events, can you make sure that there is childcare or that when you think about the scheduling of the event, you think about how that event may impact um, people who are caregivers? If you are an employer, how can you make it clear to the people that work for you that there is no stigma attached with taking leave, that people of all genders are expected and encouraged to take leave as they need it for family obligations. That's great, Emily. Um, so think about your work now. Um, what are the other topics that you know keep you up at night or you think <laughs> a lot through your work? I'm sure there are many. Mm -hmm. um, and given that you know your work every day is to help people um, mm -hmm. fight for their rights and help them um, in, in some of the very difficult times and educating them and, and, and helping them, what, what are other um, things that keep you up and um, you know, think, make you concerned? Absolutely. So the, the main thing that, I, that keeps me up at night lately is the possibility that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade, the decision that um, granted a right to access abortion nationwide. And if that happens, the, then it will return to the states. Each state will individually have the ability to decide whether or not abortion will be legal and under what circumstances in their state. I personally don't think that Congress is likely to pass a law that makes abortion illegal in all 50 states. I don't think there will be the political will for that. But one, one population that I work a lot with are young people, people under the age of 18 who need to access abortion. And I'm very worried about the possibility that Congress passes a law that makes it illegal for anyone to help a young person to cross at, over state lines to a neighboring state where abortion is still legal without, um, without their parents knowing. Um, many, many young people, the majority of young people voluntarily involve their parents if they have to have an abortion, but there are some who can't do that. It's not safe for them. They don't have the kind of family dynamics that would enable them to reveal the fact of an unintended pregnancy to their families. And it's very important that they still be able to access other supportive friends, family members, educators, et cetera, who can support and help them through that process when they can't get that from their parents. And if Congress, for example, were to pass a law that says that people could go to jail for helping a young person to access abortion in a neighboring state, if abortion is illegal in their own state, um, it would just absolutely decimate the ability of young people to make decisions about whether they're ready to become parents and if not, you know, what to do about that fact. And do you think this is our society is educated enough about these kinds of phenomena um, you know, your, your, your example of, um, you know, young people, um, having, you know, will have to confront with the possibility of go to a neighboring state and whether or not they can do that, um, and, and, and so forth. Um, I know that you were quoting an article a while back about, um, you know, a straight A student, um, and she um, used a gift card and um, traveled to a neighboring state. And um, she was afraid to tell her parents um, mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Are, 
is our society? What can we do more to educate、uh, people? I think that、um, it's really important that we all try to, especially when it comes to these issues that are maybe you know there are very strong feelings on each side, that we all try to exercise empathy and really imagine what it would be like to be that other person. Um, however, you feel about abortion, for example, what is it? What would it feel like to be a young person, seventeen, you know, about to graduate high school, very bright future ahead of yourself, and you know that it's not safe for you to tell your parents that you're pregnant, that it could lead to you being abused or kicked out of your house, but you also know that you're not ready to become a parent. Put yourself in that person's shoes and really think about what the experience of trying to access healthcare would be for you under those circumstances. How would you? Get to the doctor if if that if you were in that position and and you know how would you find the support that you needed? Yeah, I think empathy is the right word.、Um, mm-hmm. There are lots of talks about you know technology and technology empowering、um, you know our lives today.、Mm-hmm. Do you think technology can play a different role in、um, getting people more educated, getting people to develop more empathy? Um, or is this really uh, something that um, uh, technology can't really enable more of? It's an interesting question. I've never really thought about that. I mean, certainly having information at your fingertips、um, always is helpful in terms of educating the public. But I don't know if just having the information in front of you overcomes the issue of really trying to understand what that means for another person whose experiences might be different from your own. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Emily, thank you so much for your time.、Um, I think we learned a lot today, and and one of the keywords is empathy.、Um, thank you, and thank you for being very open to、mm-hmm. uh, sharing with us about your experience and your journey and your work. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Have a good day.